it says volumes about the life of this church that the leaders of the church are willing and see it wise and fit, fitting to buy a pulpit like this one. It makes me humbled to think that behind this sacred desk, I, among others, have the privilege of bringing the word of God. May it land with weight and beauty and fittedness and order on our hearts the way this pulpit sits on this floor. As I pray for God's help to unfold Revelation 4, I'm going to pray to dedicate this piece of furniture. Would you pray with me? Like buildings and land and utensils for worship and like our bodies and our marriages, our friendships and our children, I dedicate this piece of wood, Lord, this pulpit, to the honor and glory and far-reaching proclamation of the love of Christ in the gospel for today and for all the days that remain until you return. May this building and the bodies in it and, and these furnishings, including this pulpit, be the place in which you might Proclaim with power from heaven your word to hearts and ears and minds and souls, drawing them to yourself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I thank you for it. I thank you for the sobriety and humility that it works in me to stand behind it. I thank you for the, the acute sense of need I feel for your help and for the great love that I have for you and I have for this faith family and, and much more than my love, your great love that you have for me and for your word and for these precious people and those who even observe through live stream internet. I pray that you would bless every use of this pulpit from this day forward. Guard us from error, from unbelief, from imbalance. Help us to Proclaim your word in the light of your entire Bible so that every phrase of Scripture serves its rightful place in your design. You're the author. We're the receivers. Thank you so much for Christ. Thank you so much for the Spirit. Thank you so much, Father, for your glory. May in your triune glory your name be exalted in our hearts even now as we dare, as we dare through the boldness that comes from Christ to come into your presence through the reading and the receiving of your fixed and living word in Revelation 4. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God is absolutely and without limit, infinitely and meticulously sovereign. A door into heaven reveals all that is happening in heaven... And what we see happening in heaven in Revelation 4 is God seated on his throne. Seated because he's absolutely sovereign. This is the door that Jesus Christ, who walks among the lampstands, has the key of David to open and no one can shut 
and shuts and no one can open. This is why he has the authority of the key of David. He's opened a door previously according to the Greek verb that's used and it remains open and he invites John through a spirit-granted vision on the Lord's day to enter into this doorway into heaven. Far from puzzling us, far from troubling us and causing our our enlightened minds to sophisticatedly ask questions about how God can be sovereign over all things, seated on his throne in heaven, and chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation be true, where churches are lukewarm, and they're losing their first love, and they're dead, and they need to be revived. How can both be true? Both are true because of a wise and good and mysterious God who rules over the world. We should question that we question it. For the Bible has two truths standing side by side, standing as friends. This, in fact, should cause worship in our hearts. This is an image of worship in heaven. This is what they're doing now. This is happening right after and during the time that John is seeing his revelation uh, in the first century. And it happens in all the centuries since then and will happen in all the days until Christ returns. This is current events in heaven. A peek into the glory of God. But is it okay? Is it okay for us to look into Revelation 4 and study it and, and learn what's here and see what it's like to see the glory of God? Can we get this close? Moses said, anyone who comes into the presence of the Lord and sees the glory of the Lord without any form of protection will be incinerated to death by its heat and glory. It would be reading Revelation is preaching on it is like riding in a spaceship all the way up to the sun and, and orbiting in a spaceship right around the sun and, and seeing the windshield melt away and say, I need to get outside this thing so I can get a clear look. And then all of a sudden my helmet is melting away. I need to get this thing off so I can see what I'm seeing. I'd be incinerated. The very reason John writes in apocalyptic imagery, jasper, carnelian, flashes of lightning, sea of glass and crystal, eagles, oxes, lions, and a man's face. All these are the merciful means of God ordained through the Spirit for John to write so that we wouldn't be destroyed when we look into the glory of God. The question lingering after we've read of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and the overwhelming question that lingers into chapter 4 is how in the world do we conquer? Did you notice how many times every church was told to conquer? Every time, the one who conquers, the one who conquers, the one who conquers every single time. And the question becomes, how in the world do I do that? I don't know how to conquer. I don't feel very victorious. I don't feel like a conquering warrior. I'm struggling with guilt for lingering patterns of sin in my life. I feel like other people will judge me if they knew me for who I am. I don't even know, God, how you can keep loving me knowing all that I have been, am now, and shall be. How do I conquer the way Jesus, through his spirit, kept saying seven different times to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers? The answer is chapter four and chapter five. 
The answer Christ gives is, John, I've opened a door into heaven and I want to invite you to come up here into heaven and see what's happening in heaven. That's how you will have power and faith to conquer no matter what you face on earth. Christ's answer to us and to John is, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. He says must because he's establishing and underscoring the absolute certainty of these things. There is no force, no resistance, no opposition against God, against Christ, against the church that can stop Revelation 4 and 5 from happening. And you know, as you'll see, as we study these things together, Revelation 4 and 5 are the preparation and precursor to all that happens in chapters 6 through 17. Come up and see this, John. It must take place. It's certain and established. I paid the cost for your entrance. I opened this door for you. I welcome you, John, into the very presence of God. Though you are feeling utterly weak and powerless, though you know your guilt, though you know your need, your weakness, and your brokenness, by stunning and sheer grace, I welcome you. Into my father's heaven. Oh, how the persecutors of John who sent him out isolated on the island of Patmos must have been completely shocked to realize it was on that island of Patmos in isolation that he got this vision that he writes down and is able to then send back to the churches and stir hope and strength and power and faith and boldness in those very churches. John does more for the cause of Christ to surge on the earth under God's design while he's isolated in Patmos than he could anywhere else. You see, the point of Revelation chapter 4 for the churches and for you and I who struggle with sorrows and burdens today and the days to come is this. If God is as unhurried and absolutely sovereign and happily receiving worship from all the beings in heaven, then why do not, do not I join them and worship him now, no matter what my circumstances? Have you ever had the experience in your life where you're experiencing very deep sorrows, bad news from the doctor, difficult financial situations, struggles in relationships, all manner of spiritual attack, and you say to yourself, I'm going to worship the Lord right now, even if my feelings have to take a while to catch up to me doing it. I can remember so many times in my life where worship doesn't seem appropriate because I feel unworthy or I feel guilty or I feel lied about or there's other issues going on or there's, there's confusion in my mind or I'm having trouble focusing or there's temptations or uh, I feel tired or weary or even frustrated or angry. And yet this vision of Revelation 4 says, if God is sovereign and worthy of all of heaven's worship, then no matter what I'm going through, he's worthy of my worship right now. If God is glorious, I don't need to compromise with false religions, not one iota. If God is worthy of being worshipped, he orders all of creation. Why do I need to violate, mutilate, or deny his handiwork? If God is seated on his throne, who do I need to fear? For what can man do to me that God has not first ordered for my good? If God is good and seated on his throne, worthy of all worship over all reality, then what can happen to the cells of my body that God has not permitted and controlled because he loves me? 
all truth in the Christian life rests on the eternal existence of God and that he is seated on his throne. The minute you take away the eternality, he was and is and is to come, the holy, sovereign worship of God over all things, mighty and meticulous, you will go astray and be off beam and off compass with every other Christian doctrine. Every other Christian doctrine. John is writing of a vision where he's given a peek into heaven. And he doesn't see angels scurrying around like squirrels, working on machines, saying, oh, the earth is a mess. We've got so much work to do. He doesn't see that. He doesn't see a little round man with a waxed goatee pulling on cords. He sees a glimpse of a throne and light all around the throne, covered by a rainbow. And four living creatures that he has no words to describe, but he, he gives images he has and we know that are like those four living creatures, but they're not them. And around them are 24 thrones with crowned persons sitting on the thrones. And the four living creatures have a worship song that they're crying out ceaselessly, but so also do the 24 elders who cast crowns and bow down. They too sing their poetry and their song without end. Perfect worship is happening in heaven. Perfect worship. Worship that can't be improved upon. Worship that shows us exactly who we are, who God is, and how we're to approach him here and now. No panic, no fear, no troubled difficulties, no political wranglings. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of all glory, is seated on his throne. The word throne is used 30 times in the book of Revelation, five times in this section, chapters 4 and 5, to reveal the absolute, unmoved quiet, spirited, glorious, powerful worship of the living God that this chapter calls us to join. I want you to see three things as we unfold the chapter. First, perfect worship always arises from God's grace. Perfect worship always arises from God's grace. Second, I want you to see perfect worship exalts God's holiness. And third, perfect worship always centers on God. Look at verses 1 through 3. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Let's look at grace here. There's Trinitarian grace. Do you see the Trinity? Trinitarian grace is the Father seated on the throne, but he's invisible, immortal. The God only wise. He can't be seen. There's also the Spirit. In the Spirit I was in, John says. And we'll see how the Spirit reveals himself as seven torches in just a moment. 
But where's the sun? The sun is the voice. The sun is the doorman opening the door of heaven and saying, come up here. That's the voice of Christ from chapter one. The voice he heard at first, John says. Trinitarian worship. The first grace is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reveal themselves and invite us into their presence. That's the first grace. It's stunning because the Laodiceans and the Smyrnans and the, and the Thyatirans and the Philadelphians and the Ephesians had no right to see the Trinity or come into his presence, nor do you or I. But here we are. Gazing, as it were, to the living and fixed word, seeing not only John invited by the words of Christ to come up here, but us to be invited. Come and worship him. Invite Proctor. Invite Duluth and Superior. Invite the worst 50 worst sinners in the Northland. Invite myself and you. Invite the 50 worst politicians in Washington. Invite the 50 worst cheaters in New York. Invite the 50 worst liars in any city you choose. The door is open. The Christ who paid the way for the door to remain open sends a message. Just like the ark door being open while it's beginning to rain. Come, come, come and be saved. Come to Christ and be saved. Come up here and come into heaven and spend your eternity in this place, worshiping the Lord God in absolute joy, absolute rest, absolute peace and perfection. That's the first grace, the invitation by the Trinity. The second grace is to behold the beauty of the Lord. He shows off his beauty. He has no bodily form, but there's the throne with rocks like on it or near it. Or floating around it? You may or may not know that my daughter in her drawing abilities is drawing all the picture drawings that the kids have in their packs. She doesn't always put her name on them, but she's the artist behind all the drawings of the book of Revelation. I'm planning on publishing it someday. She has these wonderful image of jewels and beautiful rocks floating around. Maybe that's what it is. You just have to dodge them as you come near the throne. Jasper. Greenish, yellowish, light shines, it looks like a flash. Carnelian, ruby red, the deepest ruby red available. Fire together when both stones are there. And yet beyond that, the beauty and splendor and glory of the Lord is seen reflected, not just through the way his light flashes on those stones, but the way his light flashes on all creation. You and I are to look at all creation and see the flashing of his beauty in that his light gives light to all that we see. There's also a rainbow, and the rainbow is described as emerald, a green rainbow, probably a reference to Ezekiel 128, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness all around of the vision of God's glory Ezekiel saw. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, Ezekiel writes. John doesn't have the ability for us to see, nor will we ever have the ability with physical eyes to see the glory of the Lord. We will see how the glory of the Lord shines and radiates on all around it. This rainbow is a beautiful picture of God's glory. It would make every reader think, oh yeah, 
God's glory was seen in the way rain and the floods destroyed all evil during the flood of Noah. And yet how a door of mercy was opened for all who would enter in and be saved. So also, we look here into the white-hot glory of God and we see signaled in the rainbow, as it always means, sin will be utterly destroyed. That's what the rainbow means. And in the midst of sin destroyed by a holy God will be an offer of mercy for all who receive it. May all who seek to co-opt the image of a rainbow for purposes of sin discover its unbreakable meaning mercifully sooner rather than later. God's beautiful splendor is a grace which awakens worship. Imagine the grace of this vision as it lands on the churches at Smyrna, Ephesus, and Laodicea as well as on us. You wonder, were those churches gossiping about each other? Because they all had different problems. Were they, were they boastful of their situation and say, well, at least we're not like those Laodiceans. At least we're not like those Ephesians. In this vision, the need and the brokenness and the sin that was so commonplace, so obvious, so typical of churches and Christians throughout the history of the world as they battle with sin in the Christian life, so understandably our experience was the experience of these seven churches. And yet to these sinful and undeserving churches, a vision of verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. These are not angels, I'm convinced, but human beings. I'm convinced of that because they're seated on thrones where angels never sit. And they have white garments signaled having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 6. They have gold crowns, which is exactly the crown, the Greek word Stephanos. It's exactly the term used for the crown of the victor, one who conquers. These 24, surely the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles in their number, are representing the whole elect of God. And they are gathered around the throne, 24 of them, but they are not seated, seated, seated in their thrones expecting others to worship them. No, no, they set out of their thrones and like trees falling in the woods, they fall down before the center throne of God. They are by their white garments and their gold Stephanus crowns of victory proof positive that grace works. Grace wins. Do you know anybody struggling with their faith? Do you know anybody struggling with their walk? Do you have difficulty in your life battling sin? Do, does your Christian life seem to ebb and flow and go up and down? Are you frustrated with yourself that you're not walking in a higher, steadier, upward climb toward the glory of God in Christ? This ought to be tremendous encouragement to you. These 24 elders are representative of the whole of the church, having garments cleansed by the blood of Christ and having crowns placed on our heads by his power at work in us to cause us to persevere to the end. Grace reveals the Trinity, the beauty and splendor of God, but it also reveals 
that whether we feel like it or not, He will cause us to be worthy in His presence, white clad, crowned, and singing His glory forever. Then there's the grace of judgment against our enemies. That's what verse 5 and 6 are about. From the throne comes flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. The reason why there's thunder and lightning is because these seven torches of fire are an image based on Ezekiel again, or rather on Isaiah. They are war torches. They're an image of the Holy Spirit. We've already seen that. Seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We know that's the Holy Spirit. But what he's about to do with his lightning and his thunder is cast it down upon the earth and all who disobey Christ will be consumed. He won't flood the earth again, but he certainly will burn it. Listen to Isaiah 4.4. This is the verse I think that's behind John's illusion here in verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 4. Here's Isaiah 4.4. The Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning. That's behind the seven war torches of fire image in verse 5 back in Revelation 4. That's a grace to us because emperors and kings and, and, and false teachers and rulers of every unholy kind will be ultimately consumed by God. This is unfolded in chapters 6 through 17 with the trumpets and the seals and the bowls as they are poured out. They are the very war torches of the Holy Spirit consuming with fire all who stand in rejection of Jesus Christ. Flee to Christ. All within the sound of my voice, flee to Christ. He is the only protection and covering you have from the white hot and just wrath of God coming in fire. But as if to say, God's anger is just and holy, measured and pure. He is not a seething cauldron. He is not ready to break out in wild, uncontrolled wrath. His judgments are flawless and measured and perfect, settled and pure. Verse 6 pictures what is right out in front of this multi-hued and rainbow-covered throne. It's a sea of glass. You see that in verse 6? It's a beautiful image. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Behind it is Ezekiel 1. Listen to these words. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. Ezekiel 1.22. It's, it's like Jesus standing on the shore of California and speaking out over the Pacific, saying, peace, be still. And the entire Pacific becomes as glass. All the sea creatures obey him. No winds can ripple the perfectly smooth glass of the Pacific Ocean. It's exactly what Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee when he was asleep and there was a storm. His fearful disciples woke him up and he was shocked at their unbelief. He said, peace be still. And the storms ceased, the, the wind stopped blowing, and the water became as glass. 
God sits on his throne, and what he looks out over is a great crystal calm. A glass-like quietness that says, there is nothing chaotic, there is nothing in the world, there is no forces pressing me, I'm not fearful of any unholy agendas, they don't drive my thinking, they don't drive my my worship, they don't have anything to do with my heaven except what I have permitted for them to do to bring me glory. Beware of letting your life, your ministry, your emotions, your parenting, your marriage, your friendships, your prayer life, your church from being more driven and more attuned to and more interested in the things of evil than we are in the glory of God. May the Lord fix us on himself so intently that like a sea of glass, we are before him. There's thunder and there's lightning and there's war torches burning. And he will release those at the perfectly appointed hour. But we bow with our faces before him on glass. The grace of God creates the perfect worship of God. Second and more briefly, this perfect worship exalts God's holiness. Verses 6b through 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. They're, um, they're signaling the omniscience of God. That's why they're full of eyes. The first living creature, like a lion. It's not a lion. It's just like one. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. It's not a man. It's just a creature with the face of a man. Weird. Weird, weird. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Wow. Okay. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to, and is to come. This is God's absolute eternality. He always was and is and is to come. Nobody outlasts him. Nobody was before him. Nobody is stronger than him. He is the one to be worshiped. We regard him as holy for there is none like him. He's rare, unique, untouchable. Separated from us, he always shall be, even when we're there with him. It's like going in a spaceship near the sun and, and not taking off your, your helmet, but pondering its 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit as it rages in all its heat before you. And that heat and that light and that radiant energy is the glory of God. But if you could put something, a probe, deep inside the sun, you'd find 10,000 degrees? No, no, no. How hot is the center of the sun? I had to look it up. The center of the sun is its holiness. It's 27 million degrees in there. Cools off down to a chilly 10,000 degrees by the outside. God's holiness is the part we don't see. It's the, it's the invisible core of the very being of God. The, the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's whose worship we can't stop talking about. That's why we're given mouths and brains and poetry and songs like this. We want to keep singing about this mysterious, glorious reality of the very holiness of God. And the holiness of God awakens transcendent worship. Churches that have weak and dull and thin worship have forgotten the holiness of God. 
God gave through his prophet Ezekiel the same vision millennia before in Ezekiel chapter 1. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like a sole of a calf's foot. They sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Around the throne of God, God has created creatures, angelic creatures, I believe, that are the symbol of the fact that all nature gathers around him. Every aspect of nature, eagle, flight, man, lion, ox, ox eating uh, grass, lions eating other creatures, all features and, and, and facets and virtues of nature surround God. Creation exists to worship God. Creation is presently worshiped worshiping God. Nature, though fallen, is still worshiping God. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, storm and wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Praise him. When you enter into worship, you are doing the most fundamentally permanent thing, the most fundamentally satisfying thing, the most perfectly God-glorifying thing, and the thing above which there is no further cause. We never worship for something that we get after the worship. Worship isn't a means to anything. Worship is the last thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Inside the heart of every believer in this room right now, from the word of God, is this overwhelming desire to say, how can I make my life, my parenting and my mothering and fathering and my, my being a married spouse and my being a, a child and a teenager and a single adult and a married person, and a, and a widow or widower, how can I make my life magnify the holiness of God in everything I feel and think, say and do? Perfect worship begins with God's grace and awakens there and longs to exalt God's holiness. Finally, it centers around God. Everything is centered around God. The 24 elders, the sea of crystal, the four living creatures, they're all centered around the throne. God is seated on his throne and all of heaven is around him. When John Calvin, the reformer, used to go preach, he would tear down the pulpits up in the front, the, the lecterns and the baptismals in some of the formerly Roman Catholic churches that were now Protestant. And he would set up a small wooden one right out in the middle and he'd say, y'all gather around me while I preach. As he wanted this vision. God is the center of all our life and existence. God is the center of all that we are. He's the center of all of heaven. We'll never get to a place where God is 
assumed. God hates to be assumed. Look at verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. And here's what the elders say. It's a poem. It's a song. They sing it. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. No one can help looking at their own lives. Everyone's well, well aware of their own bodies. They look at other bodies. They look at gravity and they look at telescopes which see millions of miles into space and they behold the wonders there and they look at cells in the body and in created things and we can't help but see the wonderful fingerprints, the handiwork of God. In fact, the silliest fools who do the scientific research but have chosen already to reject God say, oh, it's just a myth, it's just a fantasy, it's just falsehood that the fingerprints of a creator exist on the creation. Why not just say, if there's fingerprints, there was a finger. And if there's a finger, there's a hand. And a hand, there's a heart. And if there's a heart, there's a being, a mind that said, be this way. Don't assume, scientists, that you have the ability to see those things much longer. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All of heaven centers around God. The 24 elders take everything they worked for, everything precious to them, everything they did on earth, everything they thought worthy of suffering for and dying for, they take it and they cast it down before him. When you lift your hands, when your heart is lifted, when you are open before the Lord and you're willing to give up your past, your history, your efforts, your opportunities taken and your opportunities missed, when you're willing to give your brokenness and your pride, when you're willing to give your very essence to God and say, God, I haven't been loved perfectly and I have not loved perfectly, but I stand before you casting my crowns before you. I fall down my face to the glass to worship you. No pride, no self, no yes buts, no doubts, no rebellion, no sophisticated judgments remain. We fall prostrate, casting our very best efforts and our very selves at his feet. Freely delighting in worshiping God, in prayer, in singing, in silence, in wonder, in reflections on the word, you are then casting your crowns before him. Why? Because every crown and everything that you are and everything around you, he created for that purpose. Verse 11, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Worship him, Ephesus, and find you new love returning. Worship him, Smyrna, and find your deadness becoming life again. Worship him, Philadelphia, and be strengthened for the challenges ahead. Worship him, Laodicea, and see if you can stay lukewarm. John saw in the spirit heaven's throne room filled with color, a sea of glass, elders worshiping, crowns rolling around on the glass, four living creatures stunningly knowing the Greek language enough to sing it in harmony, and everyone centered around God. 
Our purpose is exactly the same. We exist to have discipleship and missions and evangelism and community and lunch at the landing and sermons, Sunday school, Bible studies, prayer times, and every other thing we might do. We exist for every gathering and every community gathering and every effort that we put forth because we aim to create worship in every heart. Worship is the end goal. Marriage and singleness, old and young, rich and poor, every ethnicity valued and cherished so that worship might be maximized in this life and in the age to come. Our ultimate purpose is to worship God and to center our lives around him. You know, every question that you face right now can be answered with a man-centered answer or a God-centered answer. Put away the silly idea that there's such a thing as sacred and, and secular. There's no such thing as secular. Every question within what you might call secular realm is God's question and worthy to be answered with a God-centered answer. You might say, if I live that way, people will wonder why I serve a God who needs to have everything revolve around him. Is he uh, insecure that he needs everybody to be praising him? C.S. Lewis once asked. Or rather, is it this? That a God who loves us so much would say, my love for you makes me want to put your attentions and focus your affections on the thing that will satisfy you the greatest. Oh, and what? And who is that? That's me. I'm the climax of all your desires and affections. I'm the completion of your every quest. I'm the answer to your every need. Worship me because I get all the glory and you get all the joy. At the very end of Revelation, John, who was given the vision from the angel with him, bowed down in honor to the angel to worship the angel. He writes, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. May your life reject and avoid and thrust away from yourself all worship. And may it center around the giving, the delighting in, the enjoyment of worshiping God. Let's pray. We are singed, Lord, as it were, by the power of the glory emanating from your word in Revelation 4. Thank you for it. Thank you for the mysteries there, the confusions and the subtleties that we have to pass by in the brevity of time. But thank you for the insights into your glory that are on display here for even our spiritually cataract eyes to see. Thank you for mercifully shielding yourself in the apocalyptic so that when we behold your glory, we're not destroyed but strengthened. Thank you for the power and wonder that you are worthy of all worship. And I dedicate myself and my family and the days you've apportioned for me in this life and the people here with me and the resources we have permission over to the advancement of the cause of your worship on the face of the earth. 
create worship in our hearts and in our homes, create worship in our workplace and on every plot of land our foot sets, create worship when we are online and when we're talking, when we're sleeping and when we're singing. May our very lives be dedicated to you as an offering of worship. Always. Help us to that end, Lord. Make it real in our lives. Cause us to do this. You're worthy of it. You can't be indifferent to it. If you were indifferent to our worship of you, you'd be indifferent to your own glory, and you're not. Make this happen in us, Lord, when we know, and I know, we cannot do it ourselves. We wouldn't want to even try. It would be so phony, so canned, so manipulated. But, oh, Lord, create it in us, I pray. Make it real. Make it authentic. Make it sweet. Make it last. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's respond with worship to the word of God by standing and singing together.